Hi, everybody. Today is November 5th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today we have with us Mimi Cow, who is currently in the process of moving from the University of California at San Francisco, where she received much of her scientific training, to Tufts University, where she will establish her own laboratory in the Department of Biology. Mimi studies uh, neuronal circuits responsible for birdsong, learning, and plasticity, including some bird brain structures that are old favorites of listeners to this podcast, HVC, LMAN, and Area X. Of course, we love these structures, not just for what they do, but we also love them for their colorful name. As you no doubt remember, HVC is written in all capitals, but is not an acronym, and Area X has nothing at all to do with Professor Charles Xavier. So hi, Mimi. Hi, nice to be here. Also with us today is Todd Troyer from UTSA. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. Well, we always joke that Area X is actually the most aptly named nucleus because we don't know what it does. (laughs) So Mimi, Michael Long was here just a few weeks ago and talked to us about HVC and about the strict temporal relationship between the structure of song and neural activity in there, and as I remember that, the the neurons fired in a precise relationship to the timing of the song, but not to any actual features of the song at all. And I suppose firing an RA nucleus, which is the next nucleus down the pathway, would look more like a motor image of the song, but I've never actually seen that shown. But how about telling us about LMAN, which is some kind of side pathway in this structure, and how the neurons fire during singing and what you think LMAN is all about. Okay, sure. Um, So um, it's true that activity in RA, which is um, a motor nucleus, is um, more closely related to the um, songs that birds produce. People have, uh, Sam Sober, Michael Brainerd have shown that there's um, firing patterns or firing rates in RA correlate with specific features in the song. But um, LMAN, this this part of this other circuit, and we know that it's important for song learning and song plasticity, um, but it's not uh, it's not a motor path, it's not part of the motor pathway, and instead it's part of this basal ganglia thalamocortical loop. And we think that this is the cortical outflow nucleus of the circuit. So something like pre-SMA prefrontal cortex. Um, if you um, stimulate LMAN, you can't drive song, so it's not directly motor, but it gets input um, from the thalamus. It projects to the basal ganglia. And um, so we think of this as a uh, pre-motor cortical area that can modulate song output and uh, in particular is important for driving um, moment-by-moment changes in song and also important for song learning and plasticity. So how do the neurons fire, actually? Oh, yes, sorry. (laughs) So these neurons um, exhibit robust firing during singing. And this was first shown by Neil Hessler when he was in Allison Dope's lab. And uh, Neil also showed that um, these neurons, so they fire at specific times in song, and this is most obvious when a male is singing to a female, so-called directed song, um, but that the activity in this part of the brain is modulated by social context. And so when males are singing by themselves, they still have a pattern that's um, locked to the song, but it's much more variable from one child to the next. And another difference that um, Neil first um, showed was that the activity in MAN, um, these neurons fire bursts of action potentials, but only when the male is singing alone and not when he sings to a female. So what, are the, what, is, what does LMAN look like for calls? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, I've done recordings in juvenile birds, and if you look at um, activity in MAN, you'll see that there's premotor activity before calls, and it fires with basically every vocalization. But then if you record in adult birds, very few neurons in MAN fire during calls. So, and this is true not just in this part of the brain, but also in the basal ganglia. So it's interesting, right, because calls are also a learned, um, can also be learned. There are components of calls that are learned. And, um, but the activity of this part of the brain uh, changes during learning, during development. What's a call? Oh, yeah. So um, a call is, we think of calls as um, sounds that the, the birds produce in isolation. Um, they sing different types of calls, like a distance call, where they are outside of, um, they're not in visual contact, for example, with their, um, with their mate, and so uh, they make these really loud calls to try to try and find each other. They also make um, small, what we call tet calls, when they're um, building their nest or when they're close to each other. They're eating, like they make yummy noises. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> packing around and stuff. Yeah, but and and so we think of calls as being different from song. Song is a sequence of um, vocal elements that they produce. Um, often to attract a female or for a territorial defense. Um, but so calls don't need to be learned? Well, calls have learned components. So the short tet calls, um, they don't need to be learned. And begging calls that juveniles make also aren't learned. But um, work from David Vicario shows that um, there's uh, fast frequency modulations in um, these distance calls of males, and that's learned, because if you damage um, the motor pathway, then the calls become much more like the females. They're um, flat, and they're much longer. So there are learned components of the calls. Yeah. So L-man is necessary for learning the song. Mm -hmm. And uh, would you just kind of review for a second the, the evidence for that? And then uh, how people, I mean, I know there's there's the, always the data, and then there's what everybody thinks it means. Uh -huh. And so, but before we start talking about what everybody thinks it means, we have to kind of understand the data to begin with. Sure. Um, so, uh, one of the reasons we study birds is because they learn their vocalizations. And we know this from uh, cross-fostering experiments and isolation experiments. So, um, uh, I think the giants in the field showed that if you um, that birds have to hear others and they also have to hear themselves in order to produce um, their song to, to learn their song and we know this because if you take the eggs um, of uh, from one nest and you um, move them to another nest then those um, babies will learn the song of the foster nest they won't learn uh, they don't produce the song of their genetic parents and we also know that if you isolate birds, so you raise them in isolation, they'll never produce a normal version of a song. So we know that song is learned, and we know that this depends on signals from MAN, because um, if you lesion this circuit in a juvenile bird, uh, this was work done by Sarah Botcher about 30 years ago, um, if you lesion this part of the brain, then the bird does not learn to produce a good copy of the song. And instead, he sings an abnormal song that just has a few syllables. He's kind of given he gets stuck where he's at, and he can't, the song can't progress, and he doesn't make a good so copy. So he'll sing a stereotype song, but it won't be the right song. That's right. He'll sing a stereotype song. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it has a lot of, it doesn't have complex notes. It, it depends on how late you do it, but they'll get stuck at kind of where they are. They do a lot of repetitions. They only, lose, they only keep a few syllables, and they kind of 
go over and over. It's like really simple and and abnormal. They don't stretch it out and develop the complexity that you normally hear as an adult. So in the the sort of model of of what the bird needs to know in order to make a correct song, it has to know what the song is supposed to sound like. It has to know how to give commands to the muscles that can make a song like that. And then it has to iteratively check to make sure it's making the right song and adjust some model, I guess some model of its um, of its vocal apparatus that is a forward model that's needed to predict what is uh, what it needs to command it needs to send in order to make the right sound. The, those are the pieces of it, right? Mm -hmm. So, so well, it doesn't. It so because there's different ways it could go about doing it. So it doesn't need a necessarily a forward model if you use a reinforcement-based kind of learning thing, right? So you could take the sound of your own voice compared to the sound of the tutor and just make a scalar, good, bad, or whatever. And I don't need a model of what to do with that. I just know after I did something, whether it's good or bad. But, but you, I, you must be storing some kind of image of the movements you have to make to make a good song. Mm -hmm. No, because, because what you what do is... What do you adjust then? What are when you, you, you The idea is that you randomly come across within the space of the things that you can do. You randomly come across the right thing. So how do you absorb onto that spot if you do Because it, it just says that that's a good one. So good one means... What? Do what again? The thing that you just did. Yeah, so you did have to store an image of the thing that you just did. No, that's on the motor side. What The motor side stores whatever. It's not, an, it's not, a, it's not a forward model. Like the, the forward part of it is the implication that it goes from the sensory. I see. I see. A real forward model would let you make other sounds. So you could imagine another sound and make it. it would, but in this case, it's just a tape recording of the best sound. It's just a. It's, an it's not the, mo it's not the model say. necessarily. It could be the activity that actually makes it. So that would be more primitive than having a model, and it would be perfectly fine if the bird never had a um, never had to change its song at all, or never yeah. had to adjust to a new idea about what the song was going to be. We can't move like that because we want to use what we've learned about doing one thing in order to do something else. Yeah. But if the bird never has to do anything else, it would be okay, I guess. Well, it would just have to randomly be able to find. Is that what we think really happens? What do you think really is stored about the learned song? Well, I guess I feel like the bird does change his song, right? Um, it's important for it to be able to change its song, for example, with aging, right? If there's um, atrophy of the circuit, if there are changes in sensory processing. So it's not completely true that he doesn't have to change his song once it's learned. But I guess the idea is that there's a memory of what you're trying to produce, right? And then you randomly search in this space, and the brain doesn't tell you how to produce it. It just tells you, did you do what you did? Is that correct? Is it close to what you want to do, or is it not? And then those signals get reinforced. So both of you keep saying that motor exploration ought to be random. But I don't ever do random motor exploration when I'm trying to learn something new. I do a systematic exploration of the parameters space. Do the birds, do we really think the birds randomly explore their parameter space, or do we think that they might have some kind of search pattern for the right movements? What do you think? <laughs> you're, you're the host, you're the guest. You get the answer first. Okay. 
<laughs> well, I guess I think um, it depends on uh, where you are in learning. So early on, I think it could be a random search pattern. But as um, you get better, then the motor space that you search is smaller. Right? So at first, you search broadly in this motor space, and then you start honing in on um, the patterns of activity that produce a good song, and you refine those patterns. Then you don't necessarily explore in this motor space. But say there's a perturbation in the system. So for example, when birds are, when they lose their hearing, when they're deafened, then the song degrades, and it does look like more of a random search. They're not able now, because they can't hear, they can't match what they uh, want to produce with what they're hearing, right? And so in this case, in the absence of auditory feedback, the song does become highly variable, and it looks more like a random search. Yeah, so yeah. I could see that. If I'm looking for something in the room, and I'm, uh, and I know something about the room, I could do a proper search. But if I didn't know anything about the room and I couldn't tell where I was, I might revert to a random search. But that would seem like an extreme measure. So when the so the way you described it, it sounded almost like you know simulated annealing, so that we're just randomly looking for a solution, and as we get closer, we look over shorter distances, but still random. So am I right in interpreting you as as saying I I think random search for the solution would be fine. Well, um, so it's true that uh, when you look at an adult bird and you record the patterns of activity in MAN during singing, it's variable, but it's not random. <laughs> There's a pattern that's associated with the song, but he's already learned the song. And so the variability that you see from one trial to the next could fire a little faster, it can fly, fire fewer spikes from one, or the timing of the spikes could jitter. So it feels like there's a search that is not random in that case. But I think early on in learning, um, I'm not sure that there's any evidence that it's not a random search. I don't think there's any, it's hard to, because the, the, uh, the space is, is uh, big. I, I guess, you know, if, it, if it's to get a not random search, it seems like you need to have a pretty strong relationship between an error and then an immediate correction. If that's not strong, then well, how would you know that it's not random? You'd have to get some trend that went in the right direction uh, and was being pushed. But then if you happened at random to have a trend that's in the right direction among a whole bunch of variability, and then you had a lot of reinforcement there, it would kind of look the same. So unless you have a strong dependence on the specific history of your past that you can pick out from among all the variability, especially when you're learning, it seems hard to distinguish that in the behavior between those two, what's so random and non-random, unless it's look really directed. It's you like, need to know what the parameter, what the parameter space is, right? So if you're looking at a search and you were saying, well, that looks like a Brownian walk, and then you would have it in some coordinate system. So uh, what are the parameters? Are they motor parameters? Are they auditory parameters? Are they uh, the structure of the song like syllables and uh, harmonic stacks and stuff like that? What are the parameters yes. the animal is using? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the thing that, uh, that part of the thing that makes it hard is so you not only have to, so how, if you're exploring to do one part of the song, you have to know which part of the song the bird is doing as it's doing, and if it's very random, like early on, how do you know that it's that part and not some other part because it's so variable? So we can't really tell whether 
the animal that's doing a random search or is doing some kind of more systematic search? Well, also, I guess one question is, I don't feel like I really know what the motor code is for producing the song. So if you're trying to sing a particular harmonic stack, there could be a degenerate code. You might be able to have multiple different configurations of your muscles to produce this sound. And I guess I don't think it's known whether or not um, songs that, for example, in one family, they all learn the same song, but are they producing it in the same way, using the same configuration of muscle contractions? I think that is that remains to be un, to be seen. Mm -hmm. right? And so, if it's true that you can have different muscle configurations to produce the same sound, then um, you can imagine that it would be a random search across different birds, right? It doesn't have to be the same kind of systematic way of producing the song. So maybe we were talking about today, just you told me earlier that in some of the constant harmonic stacks that look pretty constant, in some birds they actually, because they have two vocal organs, one on each side of the bronchus down there, one of your splits to go to the, the air sacs and so forth, that sometimes some birds switch from the left to the right inside this thing that looks pretty constant. Uh, so the motor pathway and the motor code for that is pretty different. It has a big switch and it doesn't look like you can't barely see it at all. And so that would be, I don't know whether how stereotyped it is. It would be, if you could really record that, maybe that's variable about how much they switch early on. My guess is that by the time it's an adult, it doesn't exactly switch the same time just because that's the way it does it. Uh, but it wouldn't need to. And maybe that's the solution it ended up with just because. Or if you compare it across brothers, right, yeah. who produce mm -hmm. the same song, is it produced in the same way, right, the muscle activation, pattern yeah. of muscle activation? Yeah. So we definitely have that problem in our, moving our bodies, and different people choose different mm -hmm. sequences of muscle contractions to make the same movement, and you might use different sequences at different times, although you tend to kind of settle in on some sequence or not. But the... But the parameter space uh, in that case is just every muscle's contraction. So it might be a large parameter space, mm -hmm. but you search it by changing the muscles in it in various combinations. I guess um, it might be very tough to tell whether that's a parametric search. Like if you were making a computer model and you had a bunch of parameters and you were trying to match your computer model to some real piece of data. One of the things you probably wouldn't try, although you might try a random search, you probably wouldn't, because you don't want to try the same set of parameters twice. Mm -hmm. So you would like change one parameter and leave the others alone, and then you would find the best value for that one, and then you'd start changing one of the others, or something like that. There's strategies. Mm -hmm. People come up with strategies. None of them work. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, but the, uh, you don't want to give the bird the benefit of the doubt on that. I mean, because it, uh, if you just start randomly trying things, you're likely to run around in circles. Well, in fact, it takes a lot of practice in order to learn the song. The bird sings millions of renditions of the song. Mm -hmm. I mean, he practices constantly um, and uses feedback to adjust the song. So it could be inefficient. Um, but uh, yeah. and, and across different birds, the rate of learning is different. Um, mm -hmm. And some birds... Uh, even if they're the same age biologically, some birds learn much faster than others. You'd also expect that there's some innate constraints that make things, some things more easy, or so you get something close by having a, a typical, more common syllable, and then you get close, and then you do some variability around there, and that's better. So you start to move in that direction because it sounds a little bit better. 
Uh, and so I I think it's plausible to imagine that your that song is learned by a random search. Um, but I always make the distinction. So if it's purely random search plus some reinforcement signal, the motor system never really has to know uh, anything besides this this scalar signal about how good. It doesn't have to know whether it's too high or too low. It just knows that that's the the default vanilla version of reinforcement learning, right? But it's crazy. I mean, if you anesthetize birds, you can drive, with the bird's own song, you can drive activity in the motor neurons. So there's this tight matching of sensory and motor representations that you can go through the sensory system and have access to the entire song system. Why would you ever need that if you're just going to convert, you know, convey a scalar? It doesn't make any sense to me that you're not, you're completely just using this random exploration plus some um, scale. Maybe attention. it is that connection between the sensory and motor uh, system that that is actually the learned thing, and that you use that scalar to make to make those connections. Yeah, but then why would you? So you would want to use it to to push you in some direction, or if I want to explore things in the right way, maybe I can't make it happen, but Maybe I can make it happen a little bit to get a rough mapping from sensory to motor, so I push things a little bit in the right direction so that I'm exploring in a semi-smart way, but getting the high fidelity that you need to get everything exactly right. Or maybe that forward mapping doesn't have the temporal fidelity to say, I want to do exactly that thing at that few milliseconds, and I can't make that happen. But I can make it happen within 10 or 20 or 40 milliseconds. And that's good enough to get me to do some exploration that's reasonable. And then I refine it with this this uh, reinforcement-based thing that I run across the right thing. But the fact that there's a tight matching seems to me that it's not some pure reinforcement-based thing. You have to, there's sensory information that's detailed that's getting over there, or that could be used. So if dopamine is a reinforcement signal, which sometimes people assume it is, then it's acting in area X. Mm-hmm. And then area X's output goes to, I always call it L-man, but you're not calling it that. You're spelling it out, L-M-A-N. Is that right? Um, right. I think in the lab, we actually, we just say M-A-N. Um, oh, M-A-N. But it's the lateral. Lateral. Um, no, but M-A-N. the man versus M-A-N. I think there's uh, various uh, uh, lab-specific uh, lab dialects. Specific. Oh, okay, oh right. I guess so. Of the, of the songbird, <laughs> songbirdology. So... <laughs> That and in any case, that place, which is some kind of premotor structure that gets this, presumably the reinforcement-driven signal, mm-hmm. is making these bursts that control the the variability of. So the, it's an experimentation center, mm-hmm. basically, that's experimenting on the song, and then that pathway is going to RA. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. And so that. Uh, those, the bursts that come out of MAN, (laughs) those uh, bear little relationship, obvious relationship to the timing of this song. So what's the relationship between that, the structure of that activity pattern that's coming out of MAN and what's happening to this song? Well, I guess I wouldn't say that it doesn't bear any relationship to the song, right? Because when you um, record the activity of these neurons, you see that they are firing at particular times in the song. There's some jitter from one trial to the next, especially when the male is singing by himself. 
But I would never say that the activity in MAN is purely random, um, because there's, if you look at the average firing pattern, it's associated um, with the song in a way, um, and it's, uh, I guess, right, so for a long time, pe some people in the field say that the activity is totally random um, in MAN, and I think that that's not true. <laughs> um, and what's happening is that, you know, these neurons are firing at particular times in song. They're going to modulate uh, the, uh, the song output, you know, 40 or 50 milliseconds later. So you actually can see that? So maybe I see a burst in this neuron, and 40 or 50 milliseconds later, I see some perturbation in That's that. right. I so see that if I stimulate an MAN, if I inject electrical current there, um, then I can see within about 30 or 40 milliseconds later, there's a change in the song as a result of this stimulation. So it's a short latency um, change because MAN is just upstream of this motor nucleus RA, which then talks to the motor neurons. And 40 milliseconds is about the time uh, for producing the song. Um, yeah. And so uh, um, maybe different neurons will make different kinds of perturbation, and that represents the parameter space in which we could be making perturbation. Right, that's the idea, that different neurons are firing at different times in the song, perturbing it at different times. So the, um, then I'm just trying to track out the sequence of events. So now I just made a perturbation in the song by making some MAN neurons fire at the right time. And now I'd like to do that again uh -huh. next time. So I get some dopamine uh, at that point, and that changes the synaptic strengths in area X. And how does that make MAN do the same thing again? Um, Is that uh, a, yeah, <laughs> too much to ask? No, that's so. That, that's the that's the I don't know the, the main question about how you get learning and people study that less. So the idea though, it would somehow make it do it again at the same time, like. Uh -huh. And the feedback from how well it was, well, I mean, there's a big question whether it's actually just listening, is that thing that I happened just heard, is that right? Mm -hmm. And then I immediately jump up the dopamine, like, immediately, and then I have to correct something I did still like 175 milliseconds ago. Well, how do I know it's that? So there's a question about how fast the dopamine's acting this and all that kind of stuff. This is the temporal credit assignment problem, which we yeah. always have with dopamine. Yeah, yes, yeah. And then the question is because of the you're doing many different things in a hundred and mil, hundred milliseconds uh, in the song that there's that fine temporal structure. Uh, it's hard that way. And Just, different MAN neurons were doing different yeah, things, right? And you, and you have to figure out which ones mm -hmm. were yeah. doing were doing the thing you want. Or you just be sloppy and hope it works out in the end. Because like we said, they sing it a lot. But the but the way I understand what you're saying in, in your written work is that is that the activity of MAN is is driving plasticity in uh, RA. Mm -hmm, that's correct. But uh, and so the dopamine signal doesn't come to RA, or does? Is there a dopamine signal coming to RA directly? I think recently people are showing that there are um, recurrent connections between RA and VTA, um, but it is true that. Uh, we're saying that activity in MAN is driving re rewiring downstream in the motor pathway. So RA is an interesting place because it's this nexus. It gets input from the motor nucleus HVC, which Michael Long talked about. That activity is precise. Neurons fire sparse bursts 
right, neurons that project to RA, um, fire sparse bursts at particular times in song. And at the same time, it's getting input from MAN, which is also bursting, but more variably. And recently, there was a paper from Allison Dope's lab, Mahaffey and Dope, that looked at how do inputs from these, these two burst firing patterns, how do they drive plasticity downstream in RA? And Hamish did something which no one in the song system had done previously, which is to look at the natural pattern of activity during singing and to mimic it um, when, he was, when he's trying to drive plasticity in the slice. And he found that um, by altering the relative timing of the bursts from these two inputs, from HVC and from MAN, you could drive synaptic plasticity, both LTP and LTD. And so we think that the timing of the burst um, is important for determining uh, what, how the inputs are strengthened downstream in RA. But it's true that the um, changes, so learning re requires rewiring downstream in this motor nucleus RA. But that doesn't have to be uh, directly reinforced. Right. That could be just um, and there's a traditional associational right. network. Well, there's, so there's real evidence that LMAN is acting like a teacher. So if you, if you really want to encode the motor program in between HVC and RA, so it can make song without LMAN. It's just a directed stereotype thing. It does what it does. And then if HVC is doing something and LMAN uh, tells, tells RA to do something else, mm -hmm. if that same something else continually follows the same thing upstream, then the motor pathway just all learns. Like every time I do this, it turns out that I do that downstream. I learned that association. Now LMAN has changed the song in the motor program, and then a different motor program and LMAN can be taken away. Uh, and so this cool uh, Michael Brainerd in the Brainerd Lab has these cool recent experiments where because the different synapses want the synapse from uh, LMAN to RA is also weird. Uh, it's almost exclusively NMDAergic. There isn't like no AMPA, uh, and it's on shafts and other kinds of things. Shafts and, uh, of dendrites, of and not spines. And the yeah. other one from HVC to RA is more normal spines. mixed and spines and all this other kind of stuff. What that means, I, I, I don't know, but it's different. It's a different kind of uh, a synaptic connection. But it means that if you put um, uh, uh, APV or something to block NMDA, you block almost all the synaptic transition from LMAN, but not from HVC. And the bird can still sing. So now you can, instead of silencing at LMAN... Point, at that point, that bird always sings in a very, like, the directed way? Than in do you know that? I don't know. Oh, without them, and yeah, I think it's more stereotyped yeah. when you block the So the cool thing is that you can, with because LMAN both connects back up to the basal ganglia circuit, so if you silence it, you screwed up that circuit over there too, mm -hmm. not just the output, or you know, make it more directed. But now you can leave that to do its thing, but not have its effect on the motor pathway. And if you do that in these adult plasticity kinds of experiments where you drive with some shaping uh, thing to drive the pitch, uh, and I don't know, you would know more about the, what the real data looks like. I got the nature version. Uh, but the nature version is super cool. So you drive, you, you have a conditioning so that you, you zap it with a noise stimulus when the pitch is, say, too low. Just like if the bird sings that particular syllable with a low pitch, you go, eh. And normally it will move its pitch up. Uh, if you do that, um, that's very close to the same sound you made when you were in It's pretty close. It's zebra, <laughs> zebra finches. That's not, it's maybe a, 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 a confound between white noise and zebra finches. But anyway, if you do this 
and you silence the output, it doesn't do the behavioral shift. But if you now wash out the APV, it does a shift right away. Ah, so, so it's like it's learned over there. Something was happening in the, in the background. So it, it supports the kind of idea that you have the dopamine-based learning somewhere in the basal ganglia circuit that it knows kind of what it should do, and that normally drives what it should do. And it's already learned what it should do, uh, and now you just let it do what it should do, and the motor pathway is just following over days. It builds up. If it does it more often, it follows and does that. Um, so that's that's kind of the general main hypothesis, I guess, out of the Raider lab now. Uh, so the real question, of course, and now what is all the learning over in the, the basal ganglia circuit? We have a lot. We know a lot about the output from LMN because mm -hmm. they have this convenient bottleneck at RA. But now we want to know what changes over there. So. Uh, there being an area X, yeah. Elman and area X and the thalamus, that, the loop, thalamus right. that loop. Um, so you want to plan to go there? Um, to go into the thalamus? Or not to the thalamus necessarily. I don't know. So you know, how do we get? How do we get? How do we make progress over in terms of understanding the basal ganglia circuit in terms of that? I guess I'm interested in breaking the loop, right? And seeing what happens when you break the loop. If you make it, if you get rid of feedback and you uh, make it completely feed-forward, so to go straight through X um, and then the thalamus and then MAN and not have that recurrent connection back. Another place where you might break the loop is just at the um, motor signals from HVC to area X. Because now you can have HVC driving RA, the bird sings a completely normal song, but this other circuit is still active and it no longer has any information about what's happening during song. And now it's running off on its own and it's not coordinated with HVC. And you can see, can that drive changes in the song also? Yeah, so I think there are multiple places to break the loop to try and understand what the circuit is doing. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Mimi and Todd. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thank you.